Bismillahirrahmanirrahim ve sallallahu ala seyyidina Muhammedin ve ala alihi ve sahbihi ve sellem. Welcome back to the Travelers Podcast. I'm Brother Ali, recording here in the Pacific Northwest because I'm out on the Travelers Tour. The tour has been really dope. Um, it's been really wonderful to be back on stage again, to be in a room full of people on the same page at the same time with the same intention, the same energy, singing songs together. It's really, really profoundly beautiful. I'm so grateful. Uh, so I'm recording here in a hotel room, not in my studio in Istanbul. You can also probably hear that my voice has a little touch of extra rasp on it. You know, my voice has become something that I have to be really careful about. I've done all these shows over all these years. And it, you know, it's really important to me. Me and Chuck D talk about it in the last in last week's episode. You know that I really, you know, he compliments me and my voice in that episode. And you know, the the Sufis say that one of the great practices of a of a spiritual uh, seeker is to to be quiet and to be still when being complimented, because your ego is struggling to grab hold of that, that like either you grab onto it and you're like, yes, I am dope. Or your ego does this fake self-deprecating thing where it's like, no, I'm nothing. And when the reality of the spiritual path is we want to see ourselves less, we want to point to ourselves less. And the good that we're able to do is a gift and a responsibility from the source of all things. Um, and so when we're complimented in that way to sit still, but also... Great teachers like Chuck D, and Chuck D is a truly great mentor and teacher and guide. It's one of the things that he's so strong at and one of the things that he's known for is oftentimes our teachers, they speak to us as though we've already reached the potential that they see in us because they know that encouraging us um, and you know, validating us can be the wing, the wind beneath our wings. It can be the, the wind in our sails. It can be the energy that we oftentimes need to, to push forward and to help us get over all of our self-doubt, you know, and all of our, uh, all of the ways that we, you know, sometimes speak to ourselves, you know, that I, I, I'm not worthy and all this other kind of stuff. It helps us get over that hurdle. And so that's what Chuck is doing, you know, to me. But also the, the, the praise that he gives me and the validation encouragement he gives me with regard to voice, it was difficult to sit still. And you hear I almost interrupt him there because it's like, man, that's the man that is the inspiration for the voice that I have on the mic. Chuck D, KRS-One, it's those two guys, but mostly Chuck D, you know. So that that encouragement means the world to me. One of the, and so I, you know, but I've been projecting my voice for 20 years and for a long time I didn't know how to use my voice. I didn't know how to care for my voice and I do have permanent vocal damage. This time on this tour has been really great, you know. But today was supposed to be one of the vocal rest days. So I'm just checking in here quickly to uh you know, to, to add these little pieces so that we can get to this week's episode. I am on the Traveler's Tour with my amazing DJ, Last Word, and with an amazing artist from the Twin Cities named Mally. Um, starting this week, we're in Lake Tahoe, Sacramento, Berkeley, Santa Cruz, Fresno. We're in Santa Ana at the Observatory with Kali Buds. Then we get into the Southwest, which I love so much. Uh, Tucson, Arizona, Phoenix, Arizona, Albuquerque, New Mexico, Santa Fe, New Mexico. 
Mexico. Then we get to Durango, Colorado, uh, Salt Lake City, Fort Collins, Colorado, Denver, Colorado. And then we have a few Midwest shows. We do Omaha, Nebraska, St. Louis, Chicago, and then we end in Madison. Uh, and my dear brother Slug from Atmosphere will be with us in the VIP question and answer, kind of an intimate joint that we do for people that apt for the VIP package. So head to brotherali.com in the event section, get your tickets, get your VIP packages. This tour has been super dope. It's been really, really good. And I'm looking forward to continuing on. Um, thank you so much for all of the, the feedback on the Chuck D episode last week. We've had amazing episodes so far. We had Cornell West and uh, Keith Ellison and Ilhan Omar and Chuck D. This week we're joined by Sarah Rock, who is one of the, the most amazing hip hop artists to emerge in the last several years. This is the first episode with someone who I consider a peer, you know, um, the other ones that I mentioned, guests that we've had, are my elders. And so there's a certain level of engagement and conversation that we have with elders. You know, Sahrak and some of the other artists that we have coming up, you know, is from my generation. And she's one of the people who her artistry, her example, her witness, you know, the way that she arrives in the space of, you know, as an MC, as a healer, as a teacher, as a storyteller, as a cultural uh, curator, uh, as a creative is just a really profound, really amazing. You know, Sarak is one of the people that when I was a little kid and I was imagining where this culture is going to go, where this art form could go, you know, she's what I, one of the one of the, those expressions that I had in mind. You know, and so it's it's really a blessing to to be a friend and a brother to Sarak, and I'm really really grateful to have her on this episode. Uh, we've got a new partner and sponsor this week, uh, our our dear brother Resma Menikim, the great therapist and public intellectual and educator and healer, uh, has a new book coming, so we'll talk about that more later. We're also partnering again this week with Zakat Foundation and with Vice Gerent and with UPF. So thank you so much for being here for this episode and enjoy. Well, when I first had the idea to have this podcast, you're one of the people that I wanted to talk to very near the top of the list. Um, you know, there are so many artists that really speak to me and uh, really exemplify in my mind the best of what art and culture can be in general, but particularly hip hop. You know, it's um, I'm never mad at artists that are, you know, that are really leaning on the lowest common denominator of the human condition. But I don't really need help being petty. I don't need help liking <laughs> to nice things. I don't need help being attracted to the, you know, being attracted to people. I don't need help with any of that. I don't need help being angry. I don't need help being vengeful, <laughs> you know. So, but music that really is dedicated to, uh, you know, just some, just beauty and virtue and the highest of who we are, the best of who we are and what we are and what we could be and what we can be. That is music that speaks to me particularly. And so of all the people that I want to talk to on the podcast, you are very, very high on the list. And also because I have the honor and the blessing of, of knowing you personally. So thank you very much for being here. It means a lot. Um, 
And it's thank just, you. It means yeah, a lot to me. Thing. Yeah, it means a lot to me. So let's start at the beginning. Talk to me about growing up in uh, in Southeast DC in the eighties and nineties. It was interesting. <laughs> um, <laughs> it was interesting. DC is a very interesting place, um, just because there's so much culture there, and you know so much diversity. But the sister, the city is like very much so delineated by you know these very strict lines and regions and neighborhoods and quite often um if you lived in a neighborhood you stayed in the neighborhood especially if you come from impoverished or underserved communities but the one thing about my family was that my parents were um in a unique position in that my father was an artist slash cab driver so it took him all over the city he was an artist as well so you know he already had um, a really good sense of the importance of culture and having culture and um, that diversity reflected in our household as well as having um, a strong sense of like African culture and African representation represented in our household as well. And my mother being a reader, you know, she brought the literature she exposed us to so many different writers. And so we were always, even though we lived like in the hood during the like height of the crack era, um, and we saw like all of, every bit of how the hood and our communities were ravaged by that, you know, silly stuff, like crazy stuff, like how you'd be at the playground and you see we recognize, you know, needles and recognize like bags of empty bags of crack and stuff like that, like very early on. But my um, household was almost like a haven from that and mm. that I would go from that and then be able to pour through books that were showing me about the Maasai people um, that were showing me... Um, worlds upon worlds or you know my father would always have a copy of you know he had a copy of transcendental like a book about transcendental meditation right next to a book about the quran right next to a book you know we had um you know right next to the autobiography of malcolm x right you know like all these different like choices that we had not to mention their love for music and their expansive wax collection which i was always you know rifling through mm. um so it was just, it was interesting. Like we lived in a neighborhood where there were a lot of houses, but also a lot of apartment building complexes. So like it was, it was an interesting dynamic. There was a very heavy family component, um, but then there was also, you know, some fractured fam families as well. And like, so like we, it was, um, it was interesting navigating what we knew in both of these worlds and seeing as we got older, you know, how all of these different, very fam very different family units were affected by what was happening around us. Um, but it was cool because from the beginning, our family was very, very unique. Like <laughs> we were known as the popcorn family. The popcorn family? <laughs> <laughs> it's, so ridiculous. it's so ridiculous let me tell you okay let me tell you that 
my family, my father believes that we pioneered a lot of things. He believes that he pioneered <laughs> quite a few things. Okay. So like he so used he, to wear he invented like the, popcorn. Is that what you're about to tell me? <laughs> <laughs> he's, he's like the, the George Washington Carver of popcorn. Exactly. <laughs> no, 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 no. Not the popcorn. But, okay. but But we were like very few families who made like freshly popped popcorn. Okay. And we would put, and we would put like, um, you know, because Jiffy Pop and stuff was the thing then. But like we made freshly popped popcorn and we would put brewer's yeast or nutritional yeast is what they call it now and to season it and like that's all the thing now. But we were doing this very, very early on. Did, like Dutch and, oven? <clears throat> Did you make it in um, Dutch? No, like just in a regular pot with some grease at the bottom of it, you know? Uh. And, <laughs> and um, our friends would come over and be like, I remember this one time, this boy I had a crush on, <laughs> in the neighborhood i realized he played me afterwards he was like i never had popcorn like y'all um who makes it better talking about me and my sister me and my my sister she's like two years older than me and he was we were like oh i make it better she was like i you know no i make it better so he was like y'all both should make it and then like i'll be the judge of who makes it better <laughs> so this boy done got two bowls of popcorn <laughs> Two bowls of popcorn off of us because, you know, again, one was the novelty of this freshly popped popcorn that had been that was seasoned, apparently, unlike any other popcorn season he ever had. But like he played us out because, you know, he got us to prepare some popcorn for him for free. But um, I say that to say, like, my father was very, very cutting edge in the way that he raised us, dressed us, exposed us to things. Mm. And we were wearing Chuck Taylors before they were definitely cool. Mm. They had like they were apparently they were cool in the seventies, and that's why he put them on us. Like, but they definitely were not cool in the eighties. And um, <laughs> he cut so that trend we wearing, before it came around again. Right, exactly. We were wearing Chuck Taylors before. Remember in the nineties, like everybody was wearing the Army surplus stuff and all of that. He especially in DC, especially on the East Coast. Exactly. West Coast was like workwear, th mm -hmm. that type of thing. Right. Okay, yeah. So for the East Coast, you know, that was definitely popping in like the '90s. But in the '80s, um, the late '80s, uh, he had us wearing like army surplus backpacks and you know just like stuff that we didn't want to wear but you know in his mind like this was cool he always wanted us to be different he always wanted us to stand out and he was always um a leader versus follower mm. and that's what he imprinted on us at a very early age and i find that you know even our exposure to music and the arts and culture was very much so um exposed to us with that thinking in mind mm. so <clears throat> We were, he was very careful about what music that we listened to. If he even heard some salacious lyrics, we had to be really quiet. Like we couldn't like rap our favorite lyrics or sing like any raunchy lyrics. Cause the minute he heard us singing it, normally he would tune it out. But if he heard us singing it, he would zero in on what are they singing? What are they listening to? Mm. And if it was anything crazy, it was like zip onto the jazz station. Like, shh. <laughs> <laughs> Oh God! Never gotta listen to jazz. <laughs> but didn't you have a period where you listened to like alternative rock and like? I did, I did, and I drove my parents crazy too, cause like, it was it was funny because 
when I was younger, I listened to what they listened to. I liked what they liked. And I still do. Like, I still like all of that stuff I carried with me into my teen years, into my adulthood, all of the earth, wind, and fire, all that stuff. Um, but when I got into <clears throat> my teen years, again, I was very just like kind of, I stood out from like what the other kids liked and dressed like or whatever at that point. So like I was into my grunge thing. I shopped at thrift stores exclusively. I would get like the knockoff Airwalk shoes from Payless. Like, did, you, did you have pins you know, in your clothes? Did you have like the, did you go through the thing where like, you, you remember? Like, I never when, had. Or, like the, the, those kids used to have like big, like the oversized like safety pins in the their, safety in their pins. Dress. Yeah. <laughs> I never had the safety pins, but I wore the black lipstick. I wore two small t-shirts and men's pants and like, you know, just my, my style was just different from everybody else. They'd be like, that's the crazy girl who walks around with a Stephen King book at all times. <laughs> <laughs> Did you have the plaid shirt tied around your waist? And like the, I remember the kids used to have like the, the, the long, long sleeve tees with the, with See, the, with the thumb hole cut in the tee yeah, <laughs> and the black nail polish and just like, Black note. <laughs> each day, we, with each breath, we come closer to the reality of death. <laughs> oh, dude. I wasn't, I wasn't goth. I wasn't goth. It was more like an alternative vibe. Um, I used to chase the little skater dudes um, down by the library. I love the library anyway, but that was just an excuse to like, you know, watch the guys skateboard and stuff. But um, yeah, so I was into like all that stuff. I was into Nirvana, Cranberries, uh, Foo Fighters, all that, just all that kind of stuff. That's so crazy because was into all that stuff too. <laughs> oh, really? Yeah. Yeah. And, yeah. and but but I never listened to any of that. I think I was like too like no, I refuse to. Yeah. Like until yeah. until I started, you know, until me and her got close and then then I'm like it's actually pretty dope. Yeah, let me check this out. Yeah, yeah it's this actually is good. pretty good. She yeah. took me one time we saw uh we saw Foo Fighters and it was one of the most amazing. Things. It was like a, a acoustic show. So like no, nothing plugged oh, nice. in. And man, nice. they killed it so hard. And and Dave Grohl talking in between that's Dave Grohl right yeah him talking in mm -hmm. between the songs was like because when I go watch somebody like that's some of my favorite parts is like how do the people talk in between the the songs and man mm -hmm. it was one of the most amazing things I ever saw I, I can't front yeah I haven't got had a chance to see them but yeah they, they were definitely in the rotation and um and I think it was a form of escapism for me. Mm -hmm. Just because it was such a different world from what I was ex going through at the time. Um, and like that was a way, that kind of music was a, a, a way for me to channel a lot of my angst and frustration with what was what was going on. Um, but yeah, it was it was funny because I liked being the outsider, but also, you know, there was a bit of alienation as well. Um but yeah, it was it was funny, especially since, you know, you know, where I lived, there wasn't there wasn't any of that. Mm -hmm. But then as I grew older, you know, I learned about, you know, bad brains, being from southeast, being from my neighborhood. Yeah, and, you know. Man. And that just made it all the more cool. Like I, w I didn't get into bad brains until I was I got to college. I had a really good friend, um, named Maurice, who was in uh the original 
Afropunk movie. Okay. He was in a band called um, Cypher, <clears throat> and he actually is the director, the national director of the, work, the Working Families Party right now. Mm. Um, but he, um, he was in this band called Cypher. It was like a hardcore band, but with an African-centered, like very political message. And I remember going to Brooklyn, well, Long Island to visit him and going to Brooklyn and going to this all black, <clears throat> all punk show. Mm. And that was my first time seeing black folks dancing to this music, vibing to this music, performing this type of music. And I was like, yo, why was I not born in New York? <laughs> <laughs> Man, the first time I ever encountered that, when I first moved to Minnesota, there was like this, like I, I was still getting to know people. And there was this group of dudes, like these like punk rock white dudes that loved hip hop. And mm -hmm. so they, they, they had like recording equipment at their house. And they're like, yo, if you come over, you can record at our house. I'm like, all right, cool. I'll go check it out. And it's like out in the suburbs and I took the bus out there and there was one black brother that was like down with them. And so we're talking and I just, we were just having a conversation, the two of us, and we were bonding over not knowing quite how to fit in. And so I was mm -hmm. talking to him about, you know, just what it was like for him. You know, I'm like, you know, do, do these guys, like, did, did they ever say stuff that you, you know, <laughs> like, like what, how do you feel? Like, if you're, if you're in these situations by yourself all the time, what do you do when they, you know, when they say something crazy? And one of them just came over, his name was Jay. And one of them came over and was just like, oh, man, Jay knows where he's from. And he said some other, like, he just said about, like, three really slick things. None of them were, like, you know, but it just felt so funny to me. And I felt like, my, like I was overloading a little bit. And I punched him in the face. And then I realized, like, what? I'm at their house, and I don't know where I am. And I'm in the yeah. suburbs. And I don't, you know, so I just, like, walked out of the house, and I had to walk for, like, two hours to find a bus stop so I could get back to the crib. And then the next... Oh, my God. That, that was in a weekend. And then on Monday, I showed up, and, the, like, the dude that had invited me, the guy whose house it was, it was his homeroom. And so I showed up, and he was just like, hey, man, are we cool? And I was like yeah sorry i punched your friend he was just like yeah man and he was like you know what bro we're all just figuring it out man <laughs> <laughs> from that point on i'm just like yeah man we're all just figuring it out that's cool oh wow so, i can't imagine you punching somebody oh yeah yeah <laughs> he's like he's like those were different times yeah <laughs> well i mean i like I, you know i had to survive I, I don't think it's in my nature to be that way like, I just had to do it. And I've never been good at it, but I think that the, the, there's always been times when I've needed to just, like, you're not just going to beat, you're not just going to beat me up. You're going to get some, too. Mm -hmm. So it became, like, a part of having to live like that. So, okay, so you're, you're raising a situation. So it's dope to hear that you're, like, I, I had always known that music was a big part of it and art, you know, from your dad and then the literature stuff from your mom. And I know it's, there's overlap between those. But then... Like hearing the stuff about the popcorn, like, I mean, was food, was that part of the, the overall way that they were living? And where did this come from? Like, how did this enter their consciousness, your parents? Food? Food and, and art and just the, the, the idea of standing out and being different and holding right. on to culture and just having a very, this unique identity. Like, when did that enter their, in their consciousness? You know, I think for my dad... Um, 
coming from such a poor background, well, having so little resources, let me say that, because mm-hmm. his background was rich and varied and, you know, full of, right. you know, amazing people and yes, history. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so coming from a background with so few resources and having so little to eat at times and so little just in general in terms of um, just basic amenities and, you know, basic needs. Um, He, as an adult, he was always very keen on just trying new things, particularly foods. And it just so happened that his, um, his cab driving took him all over the city and there was all kinds of Ethiopian foods and, you know, Italian foods. My parents used to always talk about like he worked in an Italian restaurant when he was like 12 years old. Mm. You know, he was really tall. So he lied about his age to get a job. He's been working, you know, forever. Um, so <clears throat> I think because he was so, um, you know, he had come to D.C., you know, at a, at a younger age and for him dc was like this whole new amazing world um of which he can lose himself in where did he grow up? you know he grew up uh originally in virginia Mm -hmm. and then maryland and then they came to dc Mm -hmm. and so having to fend for himself And, you know, take care of his mom at such an early age. You know, he just was on his own to really just explore. And I never really asked my father how he got into art. Mm -hmm. Um, I know, I don't know that he had a a particular proclivity for it in like high school. But I know that when he went to college, he started taking art classes. And the exposure to, you know, artists like um, Romare Bearden, who he really loved, um and <clears throat> like how he used like collage and stuff like that i think his mind once he saw like thinking in this different way especially in the 60s and 70s where the awareness started to get to get shifted mm-hmm. you know there was a shift um you know as well as you know people starting to embrace the uh, this uh, this idea of radicalism and nonconformism and you know also their exposure to you know political parties like they were a part of the black panther party for like two seconds like i remember (laughs) my father telling me yeah we went to one meeting and (laughs) that jacket was dope (laughs) that jacket was ill with that tam that ace deuce tam that was ill then they started talking about we gotta carry guns to the police station (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> which don't get it twisted my father stayed strapped so that wasn't the issue but i think at that my they had my brother in 67 and they, they became family people you know what i'm mm. saying so like that was <clears throat> that was you know not in the cards for them, at, for them at the time even though that they were they were aligned with them ideologically about many things mm-hmm. but um they they also were exposed to, you know, the Eastern religions at the time. Mm-hmm. So like, you know, late 60s and stuff, they got early 70s, they were exposed to transcendentalism and meditation and, you know, all of these things and meeting people who were from all of these different cult these different cultures and countries and stuff. They were they just wholeheartedly embraced all of that. Mm-hmm. And they brought it back into their home and they built like this amazing um 
little micro community in our home uh, that allowed us to see that we were capable of so much more than where we were. Um, and the world was so much bigger than, you know, some folks, oppressive, oppressive regime systems would like us to believe. Um, and so that was, that was just really key for us. And that's what they always wanted to impress upon us, that we can do anything we put, it out, put our mind to. How old were you when you started going to the Sankofa Pan-African School? I was three. They have... Um, you were three? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so there's the, the, the foundational part of the school, the original part of the school is called Watoto Shule or Nation House Positive Action Center. And that was founded in 1977. And that... I'm sorry. Not, not, not 1977. I'm tripping. 1973. Three or so. Don't kill me if anybody's listening. I should know my history about this, but uh, 1973-ish, early 70s. Mm. And um, circa. so like that. We're gonna say circa yeah, 73. Circa. Right, right. Ish, right. So um, around that time, around uh, so that during that time, that was just like an elementary school. So when I was born. After I came of age, I was three years old. I went there to I joined my sister and started going to school there. And I went there for two years, and then I went to public school for maybe mm, four or five years, and then I went back to Sankofa, which is the high school, like the oh, okay. junior high high school part. Yeah. So, yeah. So it's it was years, years and years and years that I've been that I had attended that school, which was totally, um, it was a beautiful space. And I was exposed to so many notable, um, just like thought leaders and, and historians and um, cultural uh, very people who are very important to like moving the culture forward as well, I remember meeting Haile Garima. I remember meeting um, Kwame Ture, Muta Baruka, um, you know, uh, John Henry Clark. Um, How old were yeah. you when you met Dr. Clark? <clears throat> I was, let's see, I feel like I was That's high seventh school? or eighth grade. Yo. So I would, no, I feel like I was seventh or eighth grade. So I had to have been 10 or 11. Mm. <clears throat> Yeah, Dr. Clark was a powerful man. He, he was a. Uh, it's interesting, you know. I, I talked to Dr. Dr. Cornell West yesterday, and there's a clip of Dr. West. He clearly thinks like he's speaking together with Dr. Clark, but mm -hmm. everything that Dr. West said, Dr. Clark is just on his head. Like <laughs> just anytime Dr. West a reference, because you know how like Cornell West really loves like European philosophers and and you know all these. And man, he couldn't mention anything. Dr. Clark was on him. It's amazing because, you know, he was Malcolm's history teacher. Like he was an advisor. He was a history advisor to Malcolm. Mm, mm. That's amazing. I knew about Kwame Torre, but I didn't know about the connection with Dr. Clark. Yeah. Yeah. And um, so, so you can imagine at the time I'm listening to the cramp. In this world, I'm, I'm you know, fully immersed in African culture, you know, um, history, all of that. 
mm. you know, learning African dance, you know, African drill team, African languages. And then when I step out of the school, one, I'm going back to the hood where like, you know, a lot of us would take off our clothing because that's what we wore when we went to school. We would take off our, off our clothing and throw on our jeans or, mm-hmm. you know, the stuff we were wearing in the street or whatever. Because you didn't want to come back I through didn't. the neighborhood looking like, <laughs> how about I got it? Right, like, <laughs> right, like, what you got on? I mean, even though, like, they already knew us for that. Like, even when I went to, like, we had, like, African fabric draped instead of a curtain. We had it draped in our door, oh, you man. know? yes. so it was real it was like a thing for us we were known as that so but it still was this this completely like trying to pay for the pizza and cowrie shells right (laughs) (laughs) not at all don't nobody take no cowrie shells (laughs) so um so it was it was still like, you know, we were kind of different people in these two different spaces mm-hmm. because, you know, I had to be different. I had to be rougher. I had to be, you know, more in line with, or keep up with what was happening here in this world, mm-hmm. you know, in both worlds. Mm-hmm. Um, and then on top of that, you know, I'm this kid listening to the Cranberries and, you know, Nirvana and all of these things on top of, you know, loving my go-go and stuff so it was just like this mishmash of you know cultural influences which was was really dope and I think that for me um that's kind of my approach to music now you know I think that that kind of informed my approach to music now because I never had this want to conform to a particular style or a or a particular lane I kind of was like I'm just gonna do my own thing I'm gonna do what I'm interested in I'm gonna do what you know and then whoever whoever that resonates with whoever's attracted to that they'll come to me Mm -hmm. you know um so as I reflect on you know, my upbringing and all of the things that all of the different worlds I had my toes in and all of the things I experimented with, um, even though some of it is um, I've had like kind of radical shifts from um, how like how present those things are in my life now. Like I don't listen to alt rock right now. Um is, but, is there good alt rock right now? I mean, I imagine there's got to be. I don't be. think so. Uh. I don't know. I don't know. I, I don't like any of the new new stuff. It sounds like really commercial and, you know. You know, it's ill. At the I, time. I feel like a lot of younger hip hop artists, like the, the younger like rap, like the kids that, you know, they call it mumble rap or whatever. Um, but a lot of them seem to be influenced <clears throat> by grunge music. They're influencing it. I think that they they like the idea of the bad boy rock star, Uh. like the persona. I don't think that they're into the music though. I feel like I was at Whole Foods. They like the style. Yeah, I I know for (laughs) sure that I heard some like alternative rock song, like grunge type of sounding song from it's from the nineties. And mm-hmm. I, I knew specifically, I can't remember who it was, but I feel like <clears throat> I heard NBA Youngboy singing this exact same cadence and melody in one or, mm-hmm. or one of those, one of the ones, it was one of the like younger dudes that I really mess with. And 
I'm like, this is the exact same melody. Like, man, I really feel like this is, you know what I mean? There, there seems to be some sort of connection. Yeah, but definitely Can in I the style it? and Maybe. the, yeah, you know, something about that that style. Just that kind of, I guess, devil may care, you know, buck against authority, um, wild um, kind of behavior. Mm-hmm. And it, and it's funny because when I think back to like the music that we like, I feel like. Even in like Gogo, we had um, a dance called the Rough It Off that was kind of similar to like what's done in a mosh pit and stuff, where we, you know, go crazy and like you know elbows flying, we bumping into each other, letting letting loose that rage and you know kind of anger that we felt, angst that we felt. Um, I feel like there's always been uh, movements or moments within our music <coughs> scenes where we have that kind of wild rowdy you know diving off stages you know what i mean like yeah um, and it's all black music anyway like it all is all mm. i mean yeah it's all black music anyway so whether it's onyx or smashing pumpkins or whatever like it's all it all comes from the same right because jimmy was smashing guitars in the 60s yeah (laughs) yes he was (laughs) Yeah, you know, it's crazy. I was just oh, listening yeah. to Are You Experienced today. And mm. um, the song, Are You Experienced, I never realized that the thing from uh, the far side, that like backwards drum thing, is from Jimi Hendrix. From At the beginning, it was... Wow. Shoo, 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 shoo. Wow. Like, I, I wow. thought they played something backwards. I'm like, yo, like, I just, they came on today, and I'm like, that's crazy. I wow. never knew that connection. So what, you know, I know at some point theater becomes... Uh, part of your part of your expression and yeah. um you know i've heard you talk about hasanatu karma which i don't know i'm sure you probably know but that name means beautiful miracle hasanatu Has, yeah well so hasanat is the is the arabic name but in west africa they pronounce all of the 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 parts of the language of the Arabic language that the Arabs cut off. So they would say Hasanat, which is like the feminine mm. version of Hassan. But they say Hasanatu. Mm. So they say like mm. Fatimatu, for like Fatima, they would say Fatimatu. Do you know my mm-hmm. sister, Fatimatu? <laughs> you know what mm-hmm. I mean? And then, yeah. so that's beautiful. And then Karama means miracle. I was just thinking about like the, mm. the, the beautiful miracle that this woman was in your life. And, yeah, um, absolutely. Yeah, so could you talk about just like, her insistence on getting you out of your shell and getting you to use your voice and yeah and and, and just step yeah, she, into the fullness of your thing yeah she was the first person um to recognize all this power that i was suppressing mm. um you know i always had this secret part of myself when i was at home in my room that was bold and empowered and loud and um but that person very often came out in public you know of course around my friends and stuff like that but anything involving um expression Mm. you know unfettered expression um that was challenging for me and i remember coming back to that school and being new and being shy and being thrust right into um this performance that we had and 
the first performance was we did a, a still pulse song or whatever and like that was my first exposure to like performing whatever but after i'd been at the school for a while um we had a performance of ego tripping nikki giovanni's poem ego tripping that talks about the the brilliance and beauty and um you know major involvement of black women african women throughout um history's uh, history's you know major moments iconic you know moments you know and um so she gave me this the part of this piece to perform and i was comfortable with the poem because i had grown up my parents had the record so i knew the poem um but it was the the part of it was the act of performing it in front of people who I didn't know well. Um, and I was very self-conscious about what I was doing with my body, and, mm. you know, just what was going on around me. And I remember very distinctly there was a mirror um, and I kept looking at myself in the mirror, just very self-conscious, looking to see what I was doing to see if I looked okay, if I looked stupid or whatever. And she yelled at me, this woman can cuss like a sailor. In school. And yeah, we had a swear jar in our school and everything. So, but it, because because she was so brilliant, they didn't like they let her just do her thing because mm -hmm. this woman was amazing. She's like a, a performing arts whisperer. Mm. But uh, <laughs> but she yelled at me and cursed like, "Stop looking in the mirror!" Like, stop looking in the mirror. She first she cursed out the people who were giggling and sniggling about you know my you know the way I was moving my body and stuff, and um. Y'all shut up and you zone everybody out. Mm. You are talking about, I turn myself into myself and was Jesus men in tone, my loving name. Be that power. Step into the fullness of that glorious woman, that glorious being, that divinity, and know that you are comfortable there. Like, and she would tell me, and I remember that that it was like a, a light bulb going off, you know, one that I felt seen, that I felt acknowledged that I was capable of something powerful mm -hmm. because I didn't I didn't know that before. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I knew that I liked certain things. I liked to sing. I liked to write poetry, but I didn't know that <clears throat> I was able to do it powerful, that I was a force. And she impressed that upon me every chance she got. And she was always telling me, you are so brilliant. You are so powerful. Mm. You are so, you know, be that, be mm. that, be mm. that. And, you know, this is a woman who, again, was best friends with Kwame Ture. This is a woman who was you know, had a, a main role in the movie Sankofa. She was an actress. Her father was a member of the, of, um, he was a Garveyite. Like she was whip smart, just brilliant writer, married, up and married a, 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 a dancer from Guinea, you know, lived over there for some time. Like she just, she lived a life. Dope. So if, when someone like that is able to see dopeness within you this worldly woman who's seen everything been around everyone you know could 
tell you a tale and you, you know, have you just flummoxed at like, wow, like she's experienced all this. When she tells you to stand in your power, when she tells you to um, not believe in a world that tells you not to believe in yourself, you know, to disregard those forces that would like you to believe that you aren't capable of these magnificent things, you listen. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, I kept her, she was my first exposure to um, being in, in stage plays. And I continued that after I left the school and um, I ended up doing a, a community, being, taking part in like a community theater group and doing some stuff in, in college as well. But yeah, she was the first, she was the first woman who very boldly told me to understand who I was and, and what my legacy was. Because I wasn't just standing there on my own. I was right. standing there on the shoulders yes. of all of these women who had yes. come before me. Yes. And, um, you know, who were lending me their strength as well. That's right. You know? So. <clears throat> and that suffered and sacrificed to be able to do it. And if you, exactly. dro if you drop it, then, then their sacrifice is for nothing. But if you pick mm -hmm. it up, then they live forever. Exactly. Exactly. You know, I use my voice um, in memory and honor of those who weren't able to speak, you know, who were silenced and, and then so forth and so on. You know, those who, uh, in sub who are in subsequent, subsequent generations who could be influenced by me in any regard, use their voice and further the conversation, further the dialogue and amplify the voice, the collective voice. We've been talking for the past several weeks on the Travelers Podcast about the Zakat Foundation, and we're so honored to be in partnership with them. They're a really, truly, profoundly incredible uh, global humanitarian relief organization that operates all over the world, all throughout Africa, the Middle East, Europe, the Americas, Asia. Really, really incredible organization that just does so many things. You know, I've been highlighting their program to give relief and aid to orphans around the world because that program is really amazing. But since we're talking about the Zakat Foundation, I just really wanted to share that and really encourage you to go and check them out on social media. Their handle is Zakat US. The website is Zakat.org, Z-A-K-A-T. And just really want to encourage you to check out and consider them, you know, for your charitable giving. You know, all of us have something that we can share, whether it's a lot or a little bit. And the the purifying um, and really cleansing and, 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 and opening and welcoming spirit of giving and sharing of charity, of giving something back is a really profound reality. It's one of the things that we believe in the Islamic tradition that if we have a lot, if we have extra, you know, if we even have enough, you know, most of the time what we think is enough is actually extra. The, the relationship that we have with scarcity and abundance is something that we need to constantly be checking in with. A lot of times we feel like, okay, I guess I have enough. The reality is that if we look at it from a different perspective, we've actually got extra. 
And a lot of times when we're in that situation, we give because we want to purify what we have. And when we feel like we're in, we're in a position of scarcity or we're looking to stretch, you know, money is funny and change is strange. It's one of those things that people think that because they see me on stage and I got these social media followers, that that's not something that I deal with. I deal with that a lot. I mean, do not get it twisted. I never want to complain about you know, the level of sustenance that we have because for several reasons. One, because I believe that God gave it to me and I have been able to support myself and my family for 20 years doing what I love. But then also, you guys are the ones that are helping to provide it. So I never want to, you know, diminish it or disparage it, you know. But the reality is that I come across situations all the time, especially in the pandemic, where it's like, all right, how are we going to stretch? How are we going to make it work? And in those cases, it's, it's, you know, to give to others and to help others in those times of need um, is something that really opens up so much. It opens up our mind. It opens up, you know, the gates of giving and receiving. And so to give is really important. I really encourage you to check out Zakat US on social media, zakat.org. They do such amazing work around the world. And this, you know, program to support orphans is just one of them, but they do so much to provide water to people, food security to people all over the world, education, uh, health, and all around well-being, you know, um, so much to, to support people in their education, in the in the in the further the the furthering of education for children and women and families around the world is really incredible. So, you know, really happy to be in partnership with the Zakat Foundation. Check them out, Zakat US and Zakat.org. Really grateful and honored to say that the Travelers Podcast is brought to you by and in partnership with the great public intellectual and public healer and public teacher and therapist named Rezma Minikin. His name and his work has come up several times on this podcast. Uh, Rezma is somebody that I've seen as a patient, as a client. I also saw him together with my son. Uh, Rezma's work... Um, really deals a lot with and focuses on the reality of trauma and the way that that trauma uh, is is stored in and is housed in our bodies in this prolonged experience of fight and flight and freeze um, and the ways that that affects our bodies and lives in our bodies and also the ways that uh, this trauma over time, he says, in individuals looks like personality. In groups, trauma over time looks like culture. Uh, trauma is passed down, you know, from generation to generation, and it lives in groups. And so Resma talks and teaches us so much about tr the reality of trauma, but also with particular focus to racialized trauma. Uh, if you get a chance, please, I cannot recommend his book, My Grandmother's Hands. It's available on audiobook and also in paperback. My Grandmother's Hands deals with racialized trauma and embodied racialized trauma. So often we, we think and we talk about you know, race and race relations in terms of, you know, theoretical concepts. And to be certain, there are theoretical concepts there. We have the myth of white supremacy, which actually Resma calls and reframes as white-bodied advantage. And 
um, and, and he talks about, uh, you know, reframing white privilege as white body advantage. And, you know, these realities that our bodies have been, uh, you know, indoctrinated and we've been impacted by the racial energy and the, the charge of race so that we respond to each other in certain ways. So Resma talks to bodies that are called white and, and to bodies of culture, bodies of color, and also talks about the relationship with the police. All of this is in his New York Times bestselling book called My Grandmother's Hands. Resma has been on Oprah. He's been on The Breakfast Club. He's been on Charlemagne the God's show, The God's Honest Truth. He's been on Dr. Phil. Uh, Resma did work in Afghanistan, you know, with troops, uh, you know, serving the, the troops in the military. Really amazing work. Specifically here to talk about the fact that Resma has a new book coming out on April 12th called The Quaking of America, an embodied guide to understanding this profound racial moment that we're in. Um, head to resma.com, R-E-S-M-A-A.com and pre-order this book. Um, uh, you know, it promises to be one that really addresses the need for healing in this moment and then also how to survive this moment. Resma talks a lot, very truthfully and very lovingly, you know, to people of color, to bodies of culture, but then also to white bodies and speaks to all of us in ways that really not only encourage healing, but really give us frameworks with which to heal and to be agents of real good and healing and togetherness in these moments. I can't say enough about Brother Resma. We look forward to having him on the show. But head to resma.com and pre-order The Quaking of America. All throughout this 20-year career that I've been so blessed and fortunate to have, uh, what I see over and over again is that you know, this music brings together a group of people that support us and allow for us to be independent so that we can really be free in exploring myself and expressing myself. And what we find is that when I plunge the depths of my soul and uh, give air and give voice to my own you know, secrets and stories and imagination and um, reflections that I find that I'm not alone. And the listeners find out that they're not alone. And so there's a deep connection between us that creates a community. And that community allows for people to be together and to support each other, but then also to support this work. You know, there's no record label or big corporation or investors behind what we're doing. Uh, you know, in my career as Brother Ali and also our work at Travelers Media. It really comes from and is made possible by your direct support, you know. And so what we've done is because of the fact, you know, I'm on tour now, it seems to be going well. The reality is that I used to have to live on tour all the time and really rely on those shows as opportunities to bring people together and to also to generate and derive support. What we're doing now is we have what we call a caravan. If you go to brotherali.com in a section called join, you can see that we use a platform that's something like Patreon. It's a little bit different platform for our specific needs, but it allows you to engage and to support 
on different levels. So go head to brotherali.com uh, in the section called join and check out the ways that you can engage, you know, with me and also with others. We have different levels there that allow for different levels of support. And then also ways to really build connection and to build community. Uh, at the highest tier, you know, we have the trailblazers that are really in communication with each other and building community with one another. And it's a really, really profoundly beautiful thing to see. So check out brotherali.com in the section called join and get down with this caravan. Who were the students that came to the, uh, to the hard rock hotel that we did the show in DC? There was like young people <laughs> that were, that are, that were your students. Yeah. Um, my best friend who also went to Sankofa with me or Nation House, um, he and his mom run a school that's right, literally right around the corner from where we both grew up. And um, they were also a African-centered school, but they focused more heavily on the arts. And Mama Hasanatsu, uh, she actually taught there as well. Um, but yeah, w uh, when I was... In my late teens, early twenties, I taught there, but they were it was the young children. Like I taught like the little two year olds. They were so cute. Um, <laughs> but I would always come back to the school, and you know work with the children and like because we loved the movie Serafina, me and my best friend <laughs> mm -hmm. Zach Key. And so they put on the stage play of Serafina every year. So I would come and like consult with that and like just kind of speak to the kids, passing on, you know, paying forward what Mama Hasanatsu had done for me, like just talking to them about, you know, how important it is for us to, you know, own our individual power. Mm -hmm. um, and then also how important it is for us to voice our truth, you know, <clears throat> all of this, that shyness doesn't get you paid. And that means literally and figuratively, mm. you know, meaning um, it, you know, closed mouths don't get fed. There's so many like acts, you know, there's so many um, sayings mm -hmm. and things that. Squeaky wheel gets that, the grief. Exactly. Mm -hmm. Like this speaks to the importance of speaking um, your truth, you know, being unafraid to uh, tell your story, all of that, because, you know, for many, many years, I felt that I was ashamed of some aspects of my story, my family history, you know, <clears throat> and I felt that it was something that should be um, hidden away, mm -hmm. you know, and it wasn't until I... I was able to, I was doing some own, my own like self-exploration and self-reflection where upon examining certain aspects of myself, those, the darker parts, those hidden parts of myself, I discovered how liberating it was mm -hmm. to, you know, unearth yeah. those, those pieces, yes. you know, because that's how they get the light. You know, that's how you get the light. That's uh, how your light is is coaxed out of you. Uh, you know what I mean? Uh, um, and so, um, you know, just everything is just, uh, just this interesting lesson when you just kind of look back on all of these steps that you take along your journey and 
all of them are leading up to this current moment, but you don't realize it at the time. Right, right. And then, you know, I'm just thinking back to when I'm talking to these young people and telling them these things, while not like actively doing them myself, but, you know, 10 years down the line, eight years down the line, you know, I discovered how powerful it is indeed for me to do that through my music and through my creative expression. I think about specifically the Nikki Giovanni ego trip and I turned myself into myself and was God or was. Mm. And I think about, you know, goddess gang and the goddess MC, like it's, it's very uh, evident that you've drawn so much power from under having this understanding that I am a representation of the divine. Like I'm not here of myself. I am of, Mm -hmm. I am a representation of the divine. And, you know, the spiritual power that it requires to to stand there in the face of all this material power, you know, of all of this, all of this, you know, physical here and now. These people got all the power. They got all the guns. They got, you know, a lot of the 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 gold. Like Yassine said, the the empire hold all the gold and the guns. But when all is said and done, there's only one. There's only one. Oh, man. (laughs) So, I mean, mm. can, can you just talk a little bit more? And I, I know that, you know, when you were describing your home and the, the feelings of your parents and how they were drawing from so many different places, I just wonder how much of that record collection had to be Alice Coltrane. Like the way that you're describing it is like, that's Alex Coltrane all day. <laughs> you know what I mean? Alice. She's like, John. Hey. Oh, man. Pharaoh Sanders. Pharaoh the Sanders. creator has a master plan. That's right. Like, you know, it's... Um, yeah, Sun Ra. It's huge. Samra, yeah, yep, 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 yep. All of that. So, and and, and, um, and, and you don't seem to have a particular <clears throat> like. You seem very happy to draw inspiration, knowledge, wisdom, light from where from wherever it comes, and yeah, to be able I mean, to there's, synthesize there's, it. That's the beautiful. Th- that's one of the many beautiful things that you do is you're able to draw from all of these streams that have poured into you and that are existing in the world and to synthesize all of them into something that's really uniquely your own. Mm-hmm. So so can can you share with us some more about about your relationship with the unseen? Um, you know, the creator has always been a very present force in my family um, that we've drawn upon in our toughest times, like so many. Um, but because my parents always taught us that, and I've always grown to understand that there are lessons and teachings and truth anywhere you can find them. Mm-hmm. I mean, even if it's in a form that you believe is um, is um, is the exact opposite of what you believe or what you're aligned with. There was a kernel of something that you're supposed to learn, a lesson that you're supposed to learn from that thing, that experience, that encounter. Um, and then when you look at particular spiritualities or um, spiritual studies deeply, you can find a connection, you know, running through them all. Um, whether it's uh, a particular representation, if, if you're talking about um, a, a spirituality that has, you know, multiple deity representations, like you can find from 
Hinduism to the Ifa religion in West Africa, you can find this um, this connection or similarity between you know this particular expression of the divine, um, and then not to mention when we were practicing our uh, traditional religions here, you know, but had to hide them. You know, we were syncretizing, uh, we were syncretizing the the Catholic mm-hmm. Catholic faith or Christian, you know, idols or saints or gods with those of the gods, the, our gods that had similar attributes, or and and we were creating these new um, forms of worship, these new, you know. Um, new religions in a sense. And so <clears throat> when I when I was taught that you know, you pray before you go to sleep, but also you meditate to find clarity. And your meditation, your tools of meditation can come from Buddhism, it can come from Hinduism and you know, there's not one particular, with all of these reflections of people on earth and different cultures and different parts of the globe that we're in, there's not one representation of what the creator is or is supposed to be. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so, and, and, and it's, it's, it's people's interpretation of what their divinity looks like. And so for me, I've always known that, you know, we are literally a reflection of the divine mm-hmm. and that that power, you know, it courses through me, it courses through my veins. And if we understand that we are an expression of that, you know, I, I liken it to, you know, this, <laughs> I liken it to, a, you know, a drop of water out of an ocean, mm-hmm. you know, same, same elements, but just a smaller version of this, grand resource Mm -hmm. you know but collectively these drops of water can have the same power as this ocean um and so that's always been important to me to understand and express that and vocalize that because when we think about that resource you know forget the gold forget you know silver, any precious gems or whatever, when we think about a resource as powerful as that, as all light, all love, mm-hmm. you know, all strength, all knowing, mm-hmm. having access to that, when we have the proper tools to tap into that, the proper text to tap into that, the proper teachings is the most powerful thing you can be, right. you know? Right. So, and in fact, those trinkets are really just symbols of of the diamond that is the truth. Those those mm-hmm. symbol those those are just symbols and reminders and 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 reflections of 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 what's there, and that people get mm-hmm. caught up in the reflection and not realize that that this thing is just here to remind us of the of the real the real gold, the real mm-hmm. riches, the real diamonds, the real. <clears throat> Yeah, it's a beautiful thing. So, Absolutely. Um, so at, then at some point you end up going to Howard. Hate you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but I'm going to tell you this. It wasn't my first choice. And I say that because I wanted to leave D.C. I was tired of D.C. Uh, I, I loved Howard. Like, 
how was the first was the first place I saw a step show? How it was the first place that I met Doodlebug from Diggable Planets. Oh man. When I was still when I was still in high school, he came to um Howard's campus and was trying to recruit um like B-boys and like different people <clears throat> within like hip hop that explored like different facets of hip of hip hop. And I remember like meeting him and being like, oh my God, that's Doodlebug. I get to meet like a rap star. I'm at I'm in high school, you know what mm. I mean? So like that was that was an amazing experience for me. And even though Howard wasn't my first choice, when I got there, I fell in love because, you know, of course, we had homecoming, you know, we had the yard fest. Yeah, those Howard homecomings were legendary. Legendary. You know, they rap about them. Yeah. You know, we're we're in rap songs. <laughs> yeah. Where did you want to go? Yeah. Um, you know, I just wanted to be in either California or New York. So I said NYU and UCLA, not knowing anything about those schools, uh. but just be, but they're, you know, popular schools. Um, so, yeah, that's what I said. But it was more based on the cities than the schools themselves. Mm -hmm. And then at <clears throat> what point does Atlanta become the move? Atlanta became the move because New York was too expensive. Yeah, I know that's right. <laughs> Again... Again, um, wanting to get out of DC, just wanting to move. I'm, I'm, I've always like never, I've never been like tethered to one particular place. So I've always envisioned myself as being a person of the world. Mm -hmm. So like when I was old enough and ready to go, I was like, y'all, I want to move to New York. You couldn't even find a place without a broker. The brokers wanted all this money. I was like, this ain't gonna work. My siblings were already down in Atlanta, so I ended up moving down there. And, um, you know, not knowing, I had left school early, you know, everybody was up in arms about that. Uh, <laughs> had no idea what I wanted to do in life. I just know, I just knew that I needed, I wanted to do something different. Mm -hmm. And Atlanta used to have this um, festival called the Auburn Festival. And it was <clears throat> this festival they had downtown, they would have like local acts and stuff perform and like vendors and stuff like that. And I remember being down there and this was my first exposure to like the South. <laughs> like my family is from, <laughs> excuse me, my family's from Virginia, uh, Virginia but it's a totally the South, different. But the, the, yeah, Atlanta is the South South. It's, Atlanta is the South. With, 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 South. with three Fuh. Fs. Exactly. Right. And so... I remember hearing these brothers talking and I thought they were speaking a different language. Mm. Like I literally, like, you know, I I listened to Outkast. I loved Outkast. <laughs> right, right. Like Outkast was like, and, you know, I, but but their accents I, for, were easier for me to understand. Of course, there was some stuff that went over my head mm. and stuff like that. But like, I was not ready for Atlanta. And when I heard that, I was like, whoa, like, it's just so amazing how vast and, you know, just, just diverse this, this country is and like our blackness is. Right. Um, and so when I, when I saw that, I was like, oh, this is going to be interesting. This is going to be real interesting. When I heard, you know, the, the, those brothers talking, I was like, first of all, that's going to take a little bit for me to get used to. And <laughs> you became an anthropologist. What language is this? Yeah, it appears to be exactly. some sort of native patois, of which I'm unfamiliar. Like, right. Like, what did he say? You, what is, you, what you does know, that it's mean? Ill because me and you have both like spent time in West Africa. I mean, 
you know, within a five mile radius, there are 17 <clears throat> tribes that each have a different language. And then they'll have one that they all speak. There'll be a language that everybody knows because it might be the dominant one. You know what I mean? Mm. So maybe everybody knows some Mandinka or some F or Fulani or something like that. And then people know like French or whoever colonized, you know. But th right. the, the number of different languages that don't even share words. I know, I know. And I used to, I remember when I would meet like people from different countries, Africa and stuff, I would feel so dumb because they'd be like, yeah, I know six, casually, I know six or seven languages. Nothing. Because it was like my mom, my mom knows three, my dad knows three, I know, you know, two, you know, there's the national language, you know, it's just, it, we, we know nothing when it, when we think of this world. That scene, that know, scene in us. Muhammad Ali when, it, when, uh, when we were kings. <laughs> When he's flying, uh, when they're on the plane, it's like this brother knows mm -hmm. French, English, uh, you know, what I mean? and is African. We don't even speak English that good. <laughs> That's a fact. That's yeah. a fact. But what's so cool? Speaking of Senegal, is how like hip hop, that thing that we created here in this kind of black people created here in this country, has become a universal language Absolutely. of sorts. And I remember going to Senegal. You know, I remember going to this beach in Senegal and I knew like a very little French, not really enough to communicate. <laughs> I know I knew no well off, well off, like, you know, basic things like Nagadef and, and Jedajef and stuff like that. Yeah. But like, yeah. You'd be like, wait, yeah, what's Nagadef? No, Nagadef. Right. Yeah. Nagadef, Mangifi. Yeah. yeah. Um, bake, so bake. This, this brother was speaking in Wolof and we were trying to, you know, use our hands and, you know, to communicate. And I remember us telling him that we were from the United States and he just busts out in this, this Tupac rap. And I, I don't remember what the rhyme oh, was. Oh, man, I wish you did. Can, can, I know, I wish I did Can too. we say it's Hail Mary? <laughs> Hail Mary. <laughs> Come with me. Um, yeah, and, and I was just amazed and pleased and just we think about you know our experience in a diaspora mm -hmm. and when we go over there trying to find connection and sometimes trying to force connection um you know with our home mm -hmm. and for something to happen like that so organically to just kind of uh forge that that connection so just so naturally was really, really beautiful. And it just really just spoke to how powerful, you know, that cultural, that ancestral DNA is and, you know, how we can't, if, if we wanted to, we can't escape that, you know, and I definitely don't want to. <laughs> how long did it take you to figure out that wow means yes? Oh. You're talking uh, to people to be talking like, they're just like, just going and going well, and going and brother standing, well, Wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah, wow. Yeah. You're like, man, he must be saying something major. It's like, no, he's just saying, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah. yeah. You know, what's crazy <laughs> is like, well, it's just amazing and beautiful that the, you know, so many things that I've witnessed in West Africa, you see them appear in, in black American culture, but oftentimes it's like, now it's through the lens of, uh, uh, you know, generational trauma and, you know, all types of stuff. So it shows up in different ways. We went to, I, I was in the Gambia visiting my Sheikh, Sheikh Mohammed Jailani. And he says, like, we're going to go to, we're going to go to an event 
out in the like the countryside and it's going to be an all-night thing mm-hmm. so he's like get some rest i'm like all right Ooh. so we go to this thing and there's like the prominent like religious teachers are talking and one of them just took a break in his talking like he had the microphone everything he just took a short break and this blind man stood up and just started singing like these praise songs for the prophet muhammad Like, and i'm just like this is dope but he just interrupted the sheikh like this is cool okay <laughs> and then like women came up and they had bags they had these like silk or like satin bags with mm-hmm. with ones in them and they were like throwing them at the at the man Mm-hmm. And I'm like, okay, this blind man, like, this is what he does. Like, okay, this is dope. And then he had, like, his, his like, nephew or son or somebody like that was, like, picking it up and, like, putting it in his pocket while he was mm-hmm. singing. And then he mm-hmm. sits down. And then the sheikh start like, this is like, <coughs> oh, as I was saying. <laughs> you know what I mean? And then he stops for a second, and somebody else, another man stands up. And he's just, he's singing, like, a song to the sheikh and about the Prophet Muhammad and about the... the And then, and then women come up and they got a bag and they start throwing. And I start realizing there's like mm-hmm. different, there's, you know, there's different techniques. They throw the money differently according to how they're, how they're feeling the spirit. But it's basically like they're making mm-hmm. it rain on these men. Mm-hmm. You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. But this is all like, a, like a, a communal, cultural, spiritual, religious practice. You know what I mean? And you just see like how yeah. this showed up in our like when, once it went through the the lens of um are you familiar with Resma Menikin, the 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 uh, therapist? No. He really no. Be, he has a book called My Grandmother's <laughs> Hands. Really amazing uh therapist and and specializes in trauma and specifically racialized trauma. Um he saw me and Fahim as a as he was our therapist. And then I saw him a little bit myself as well. But he says that when when these type of uh, traumatic events uh, are blown through our bodies and, and we hold them in our bodies, over a while we start to enter this trauma loop, you know what I mean, where, where, that, that we're constantly reenacting. And over time, those things start to look like, in individuals, it starts to look like a personality. And in people, it starts to look like culture. But really, this is just, you know, the, the, the reaction to, to, uh, to generations of, of inherited trauma. And... Um, So yeah, it's just really amazing when you when you when you see those those practices, you know. Mm-hmm. Yeah, even growing up, like doing African dance, like if a woman is you know killing it, people, women will come up and put a dollar on her forehead and throw money, and you know it's not like you know sexualized or anything like that. It's just how we show our appreciation for the arts and you know and and someone who is caught up or being an exemplary um emissary mm-hmm. of this like culture embodiment of this you know culture yeah um so yeah it's uh it's so interesting i need to get back to senegal myself yeah man and you just see like i just <clears throat> saw this like blind man like go home with pockets full of money and nobody no one person like broke the bank to do that mm-hmm. like everybody everybody in the village you know is is making around that probably has around the same amount of resources but the fact that mm-hmm. like this person stands up and reminds us of who we are and reminds us mm-hmm. the, of the best of who we are and our stories and the great the great leaders that we have and you know our spiritual religious figures and so mm-hmm. we just take care of them we just 
like show the appreciation in that way. And you look at at now and like this ridiculous, just demonic force called the music industry that we're that we have to navigate. You know what I mean? To try to do that same thing where like. You know, they're saying that the, here's somebody that they're being rewarded for the fact that this person reminds us of the best of who we are. You know what I mean? Where now, if you do that, you have to fight so hard to even be recognized yeah. that like th- that this yeah. music has any value at all. Yeah. 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 It's it's so funny, especially since what, you know, hip hop was, it was like only the best of the best. There was there were so many gauntlets that you have you had to like go through and under and survive through to to prove yourself worthy Mm -hmm. of being the you know all city if you're a graph artist or being like the dopest mc or whatever and like those are the people who were lauded celebrated you know because they went through training they they were properly educated and now those same people who like have a dedication and devotion to their craft and being the best at what they do those are the people who are like uh eh, y'all doing too much yeah you know? it. don't i want to hear all that <laughs> yeah yeah just like that you excellence don't. is like that uh, just makes me mm, too much yeah because i think there's this this interesting phenomena uh phenomenon of if instead of seeing someone great mm-hmm. and that that person being inspirational mm-hmm. and you look at them as like something to aspire to and like, oh, I want to do that. I want to get there eventually. I think we live in a culture now where seeing someone great makes us see the worst in ourselves mm-hmm. or what we feel we aren't. And um, we push those, those people to the side. And we have begun settling for, well, not even settling for, just settling in general. Um, I think because just the system of capitalism in and of itself is, um, it's based upon this lie of hard work, but really the people who benefit most from capitalism are the people who do the least work Mm -hmm. and exploit the hard workers. You know what I mean? Um, so I think when we when we think of work, the work that has to go, the sacrifice that goes into achieving a certain level of um, excellence, you know, it, it makes us tired because we work hard enough as it is, yeah. you know, and we're told so, in so many different ways that we're not good enough in, from so many different directions. So when we see this and we see what we aren't, or what we feel we aren't capable of, or we are not at that level, it kind of sparks a le- some insecurity within ourselves. And I think that for me, it's really important for me to speak to that through my music and talk about how, you know, just as I'm capable of this, you're capable of this. And that's you know? and, that, and that's what happens when, you know, when you talk about the the reality of you know going into those dark little secret places of yourself. And allowing yourself to explore yourself in that way and then express those things. Because when people hear those, they know that they're not alone. Like somebody mm-hmm. else has my secrets. And it, they don't even yes, have to be yes. exactly the same. It's just like if mm-hmm. it even 
reminds me of my secret. It doesn't, you know what I'm saying? If it even reminds me yeah, of my, even, yeah. Yeah, whatever that you put, whatever that you, whatever you share that reminds people that they're, that you're human as well. Mm-hmm. I mean, cause I think that this, this cult of celebrity, you know, it tells us to worship people as these perfect, um, unachievable models of, you know, humanity, you know, and when people see someone who's like, wow, that person is dope, he or she is dope, but also they're just like me because they survived this thing and they were, they were able to push through that and still be brilliant. And I can possibly do that too. Yeah. It's like when you mentioned teacher. So I, I think I have, I think I mispronounced her name. Is it Mahasanatu or Um Hasanatu? No, it's Hasanatu. I was calling her Mama. Mama Hasanatu. Okay, okay, okay. Yeah. So Hasan also means, you know, there's other words for beauty as well in the Arabic language. So like Jamil and Jamila is beauty as well, or Jamal. Mm. Mm-hmm. Uh, but mm-hmm. Hasanat deals with a beauty that's that's because of excellence, and even perfection, mm. even something close to perfection, you know. And when mm. you think about like what she was able to to do for <clears throat> you, because of the fact that you're looking at her and like this is this woman that she's traveled the world and she's powerful and you know speaks these languages and 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 all of these things, and then she's seeing something in you. I mean, it's really like I had the blessing of tour, of touring with you for i mean both of those legs of the tour was like stretched out over over almost six months and this is even before Mm. sharecropper's daughter this is before your what i consider to be your opus you know up up to this point where you you know i'm saying so when we were on tour uh forever wasn't even out yet goddess gang wasn't out Mm. yet hand of god wasn't out yet um something like none of these joints were out and so this was just the the body of work that you had prior to that and, mm-hmm. you know, watching women in particular watch you, like I just, I, I saw them change. I saw, their, I saw their posture change. I saw the way that they were mm-hmm. holding their bodies change. I saw the, the, mm-hmm. the ways that their eyes lit up, you know, when, when you were doing your thing. And mm-hmm. it's such an, and it really, you know, you think about like you being shy, you know that like your natural state you naturally incline towards shyness unless you know people you know what i mean like mm-hmm. a couple of weeks in that van it's like that shyness is out the window and then like you know what i mean and then you start getting all of the all of the you know get loose yeah 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 right. I, i'm saying i think that a lot of people wouldn't know how funny you are and how nerdy you are and um you know how silly you can be and all this is really 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 dope but so like you're the 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 you know you said I'm not the typical rap chick I'm pick of the litter type to pick up a mic become a mythical figure like that's mm-hmm. something that's really born out of a sense of of <clears throat> duty you know that like you're duty bound to do that because of what it what it allows for other people so yeah. I'm curious about so you already had these different performance elements in your life you you're doing theater. And then was there also like a point where you were doing poetry? Was that like part of your practice as well, like early Atlanta? Because I know at some point you meet Soul Messiah. But you were already on the mic in some kind of way, right? No. Uh Uh-uh. No, I didn't do like spoken word or anything like that. I wrote like poetry for myself. Mm. Um, But I never did spoken word. 
Um, Were you leading spiritual? I, I've seen a video of you where you look like 16, like leading a spiritual gathering or something like that. Were you like teaching or like? I don't know. What's that video? Masai showed me a video. <laughs> Send me of that you. video. And you look really like young in the video. And what was I doing? I felt like you were I felt like you were doing poetry or speaking, but like it was there was a room full of people and I know that speaking was mm. part of it. And he was saying like this I saw it. This is like he was telling me like what he saw in you and what made him know that you were that you could that you were an amazing MC. Mm, I don't know. I have to like look back at that and see what I was doing, but yeah, Atlanta I didn't do anything on the mic until after you know, Soul Messiah and I had linked up and um, we played around in the studio. I ended up recording some stuff just out of vanity and he told me it was good. And I was like, okay, that was all I needed to hear. Let's play around some more. And we were, we ended up recording my first EP, but um, <clears throat> I didn't end up getting on the mic until uh, at a Matulu Shakur fundraiser. And they just, and I hadn't even, I guess... Like the way I see things, I don't really like, I'm not one of those people who like dream of this future and plan out my future. I just kind of like take things as they come. Mm -hmm. um, I guess that's my, my parents, like Eastern spiritual teachings. We had a book called Be Here Now and it was just like book. be in the present moment, mm -hmm. all that. And so, um, yeah, I didn't even think about okay, if you're recording music, you're eventually going to have to perform it. <laughs> I totally did not make that connection in my mind. I'm thinking I'm just playing around. But apparently Messiah had been telling people that, you know, we're doing the music thing and, I, and he ain't tell me. And um, <laughs> they called me up to the mic. <laughs> they called me up to the mic at this... Uh, at this Matula Shakur thing and I ended up performing one of my songs and you know at that time you know everything was very like ah, ah. it's still like that in many ways but like it was it was kind of like a spoken word piece I think the way that I performed mm -hmm. it um but uh seeing and in feeling how people responded to me I think it it brought me back to the days of the theater mm -hmm. and you know when I was doing plays and stuff like that and I was like oh like even though I'm nervous like I used to get so nervous on stage like you know sick to my stomach and all kinds of stuff and um even though I'm extremely nervous I feel a sense of comfort being on stage and delivering this in this particular way mm -hmm. Like, I feel powerful. Like, I remember, because so many years I hadn't done anything in the creative arts um, in between <clears throat> my early college days and moving down to Atlanta. Um, and I remembered that. And I was like, yo, like, okay, this isn't so bad. Maybe I can do this again. <laughs> and it was so cool because at that time in Atlanta, there was this huge independent music scene. And along with the activist scene there in the cultural community, all, all places that I felt really familiar with because I grew up in that in DC. And all of that was like really connected. So I was around all these dope MCs. I was um, 
Um, and they were all like really autonomous. Like it wasn't a community that was dependent upon like promoters and stuff like that. Everybody was throwing their own shows. They had their own nights and all these little dope little cliques and crews and stuff in Atlanta. And I was like, yo, this is dope. Like I was working in um, natural food, the natural foods industry and <clears throat> going from that and then just like immersing myself in this world where I was learning about how to be an MC and having all of these examples of like how you perform and like, you know, and it was all, there were a lot of women too, mm-hmm. which was really super dope. Mm-hmm. Um, especially at a time where in like mainstream music, there weren't a lot of like a whole bunch of women who were, you know, super popular at that time. Um, but there were a whole bunch of women, um, Book, Brown, Star, you know, Rita J, Khalila Ali, that were all like, you know, just kind of doing their thing in Atlanta. And um, it was a way for me to get my bars up and my writing up real, real quick. It's like I had a crash course because I think I was telling you before, like, I I didn't like I I loved hip hop, but that wasn't like a central part of like my my. Uh, musical right like, it's just one of the many listen, like one it, of the many seasonings the in, the, in the in the mail right right so i wasn't i wasn't the one that grew up writing raps and you know i knew all the lyrics to this uh nas song or no i wasn't that one mm-hmm. um i had like a few people who i loved and latched on to and you know i knew their lyrics the fujis and outcasts and Karis one and stuff but um so I, always, I felt like I was playing catch up and it was so crazy because it was literally like the universe was like, let me clear this path for mm-hmm. you. Because as soon as I started like getting my sea legs, I was getting opportunities to like open up for like, like pioneers, mm-hmm. like um, Cold Crush, uh, Black Sheep, uh, Brand Nubian, um, like all these people and like I was getting placed with these people yeah. and I was like and, and Messiah would be like yo I don't think you understand like how like <laughs> profound this is like <laughs> I I knew who Black Sheep was right. you know I knew who Brand Nubian were but Cold Crush Brothers not so much uh, you know and then he had to like show me you know Wild Style uh-huh. and you know what I mean movies and that I grew to love and, you know, I grew to understand the importance of, like, these different groups. But, like, then, like, Shyrock called me on the phone out of the blue mm. and was talking to me about how much she appreciates me and what I do and loves my music. And, and I'm like, what? How is this happening to me? Right. And then I had to go back to what Mama Hasnatu said and was like, uh, do you know who you yeah, are? Yeah, because you're dope. Like, understand who you right. are understand who you that's are right. even if you don't see it we see that's it right. but it's we not your need job you to, to see it. it it's your, just your job to just yeah. do you and just be yourself yeah just do it right. do it do it do it do it did you ever have a so i i don't know if i've known a person that goes from being like a <laughs> private person to being someone on stage that now people know so anybody is like people talk about what is fame and like you know it's all relative there's different levels of famous so there are people that'll be like Brother Ali, it's different because you're famous. And I'm like, mm, I know Dave Chappelle. He's famous. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm famous at my show. 
<laughs> but right. like if I walk a block in any direction, nobody knows who the hell I am. I'm just a KFC man if I walk one block from here. But not the KFC man. Santa Claus and the KFC man and the, you know. No. Uh but man, yo, everywhere I've been everywhere in the world. First of all, black people everywhere are just like, yeah, albinos are from us. Everywhere I've been in the world, but everywhere else I go, people always talk about KFC. <laughs> I was on Hodge. They what? People talk about KFC. People talk about KFC, like Colonel Sanders. That's so weird. I never would have. I had to like think. Especially like once KFC. I grew the little Why beard, I was that? just like, man, I really like this oh. beard very much. But this is. I don't think this is helping. But this got to go. <laughs> <laughs> no, actually, I man. My beard got lost in translation the other day. I went to my, because Turkish barbers are dope. Like, they're really good. And I went in the other really? day, and I was like, Abi, make it longer, longer, longer. And I think he just misunderstood. So he was like, okay. It was just like, oh, yo, what are, what are you oh. doing? <laughs> That's the opposite of what I wanted. And he felt so, he immediately felt so bad. Like, he could see on my face, and he was like, is it okay? And I was like, mm-hmm. I was trying to make longer, and he was like, <laughs> he was like, I make a big mistake, and I was like, I'm so, it's okay, oh, no. it's okay, but um, just oh man, yeah, but you know, but That's man, so everywhere funny. I go, like Africans always recognize albinos, everywhere, mm. yeah. Mm. Um, what so, what I was thinking is. You know, the, everybody that I've known that's gone from, almost everybody that, that goes from, you know, I am not, I'm, I'm just a face in the crowd to being somebody who people know me, that, but I don't know them. Like that's going to be some degree of famous. And most people have a moment or some stretch of time where they lose their mind a little bit because the ego is just like, oh, the ego is like, I've been waiting for this day. <laughs> so when you were like you punch people Uh, brendan the (laughs) brendan (laughs) brendan and slug and everybody that was with me on my first tour knows that i was not used to be i i became muslim at 15 i'm from north minneapolis i was not used to being around drunk partying white guys and i didn't understand Mm -hmm. that like when they were in your space and stuff i thought i was like oh we're we're about to fight you know what i mean and so there were times where i would just be like okay you know, but also I was losing my <laughs> mind a little bit. Did you ever have, like, did you ever have, even if it was very private and even if it was very classy and it was very, like, did you, have you ever felt the 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 ego trying to, to, <laughs> to just be like a star? Like, or like, because I've never seen it. I've never seen it. Like, we went, we made it through that whole like 50 some city tour together and I never saw a single moment where 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 I felt like you were doing what most people do on their first long tour which is like you know but I just wonder like what what's that what's that balance or what's that dance been like for you the the spirit the sense of duty you know the 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 reflection of god but then also <laughs> I know, I mean a human being has an ego in there and it's always trying to do its thing too. Uh, so what's that? What's that like for you? You know, I'm, I know this is probably going to sound unbelievable, <laughs> but <laughs> no, not in the way you're probably thinking. Not in the way that you're thinking. Mm-hmm. I think I am always so in awe mm-hmm. that this is my life mm-hmm. that I never even think that 
like I'm always humbled by this experience of being able to perform and write and like people respond to it and they love it and they support me that there's there's never been a moment where I feel like you over there bring me my cake <laughs> you know what I'm saying where are my roses I because I'm just so like yeah. happy to be in the room mm-hmm. you know I'm just so happy you know and I think that because I've seen the ugliness I've seen people who they're not even I mean not even not that you should be like that when you get quote unquote famous, but it'll be people who are not even close to that level. I'm right here. I that'll just be I like. I can hear you. You know, I can hear not, you. No, it's not you. It's not you. It's not you. I swear I'm not talking about you. Like they're they're not even be, that famous. <laughs> no, I swear I'm I not know. talking about. No, but you, you had a moment when we were on tour. No, you didn't have a moment, but there was a moment when I was like, damn, Ali got the juice. Remember when we were in. New Orleans and we went to that restaurant and the restaurant was uh <laughs> No, I don't remember this. I think you're thinking of Can I share I this think part? you're thinking of your other albino Muslim friends. No. <laughs> no, we were we were this this place was full and the person recognized you and oh, was like oh, okay. right this way. Okay, 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 okay. Yeah, okay, okay. and they were like right this way. And I always wondered in my mind like how does he feel right now? Does he like, is he flexing on the inside real quick? Like, you know, like how does that make, how did that make you feel? Yeah, no, the, the, you know, the, those things do happen. Yeah. Those things do happen. And, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think I'm at a place that's closer to you now, you know what I mean? But, and I, I don't, you know, I think on my first tour, I, I struggled. And I don't think that I struggled on some, like, uh, I am great, even though I definitely have that. Like, there's, I've always believed that I was supposed to be on the mic and everyone was supposed to be listening to me. Like, I've always, since mm. I was a little kid. And I tell a story all the time, I but I saw KRS-One give a lecture uh, when I was 13, asked a question, he brought me on stage. And I remember standing on the stage next to KRS looking at the audience and like, this is like my favorite MC who's also giving a lecture. And I was like, yep, this is what I am too. This is what me and KRS are. Oh, wow. <laughs> like I've always, that's great. I've always had that, that feeling. But when you say that you're always genuinely, when you say it would sound unbelievable that you're always genuinely grateful and in awe of the moment, I believe that that's true. I know that that's true because I've, I've witnessed you in those moments and I've seen you know, times where you have very clearly stolen the show and you very clearly, um, you know, and it's, it's very, very true. And the word for that in the Islamic tradition is saint. When a, yeah, when a, when a person is, <laughs> when a person is closer to witnessing the hand of God than they are to their, to, they're not seeing themselves, they're seeing God. They're seeing God. They're not seeing themselves because it's the ego's job to be obsessed with self and with the the smaller thing. You know what I mean? And it's the soul's job to always recognize the the reality of the situation. So, yeah, I I believe that. I've seen it. Now, I'm going to say I I do take a long time to get ready. So that could be like my little diva moments or whatever, where people are waiting on me. And that's literally not just because I feel like people should be waiting for me, but it's because I just take a long time to get ready. And I. This is also true. (laughs) 
you you have witnessed this firsthand. Mm-hmm. There were we'd be battling each other, getting to trying to get to the the tour van on time. Oh, dude! <laughs> I'd be like, oh my god, oh my god, I made it before I leave. <laughs> oh, thank God. Yeah, yeah. Now me and you were definitely the, the yeah. <laughs> we were always the last. What we would always be one of the last. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but I'm you know, it's interesting too because in a modern context, when people dress well, they're people are dressing for themselves. So there's self-aggrandizement. Mm-hmm in modern in a modern narcissistic world but for people who come from community and from culture we don't dress for ourselves we dress for our company we dress to honor the the people that you know that we're with and the assignment you know mm-hmm. so in that sense i don't think there's anything wrong i think that's part of of the of the artistic expression i think it's part of the the ceremony of it you know that there's not a mm. ceremony that doesn't come with uh, some sort of, you know, that, that that when I step into these clothes, you know what I mean. This this indicates that I'm in a different mode now, and it has nothing mm-hmm. to do with vanity. Vanity has no role in it. You know, it's deep. The, um, the you know, there's like thousands of mosques in Istanbul, and they all have an imam whose job it is to lead the prayer. And some of them in the bigger mosques are employees, like full-time employees, that that's all they do. But in the smaller mosques, like in the neighborhood, um, you know, there there are sometimes people who most of the time lead the prayer, but sometimes it'll be somebody that comes in off the street, but everybody in that in that neighborhood knows who should lead the prayer if they're there. And so I've seen people, and they come in and they put on like the robe, and then they put on the like it's a pre-tied like turban and hat that they put on when they're leading the prayer. And I've seen, man, there was this one guy that came in off the street one time, and he had on the the clothes of like a garbage collector. But he mm-hmm. he went over to the thing and he put the thing on and he put the 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 turban on, and he went and read the prayer. It was beautiful, one of the most beautiful things I've seen. It's beautiful. Yeah. So I don't I don't mm. think that I think that some like what you what you're talking about. Is part of the ceremony, like you know, being the master of ceremony. I think that's an important thing. You know, why why you're wearing a um, a twelve year old boy's Pakistani boy's uh, <laughs> you know wet, wedding garment. I mean, that's a different thing, but you know what I'm saying. Exactly. But that's, you know, listen, listen. You can get you can get fly from all walks of life, <laughs> all age ranges. Oh, I'm just letting you know right now. If it fits, I'm wearing it. No, 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 I'm just no. kidding. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's dope. If you're a regular around here, you know that we've been talking for the past several weeks about vicegerent, makers and merchants of fine tailored clothing for men. And we've talked a lot about what it means to wear clothing, you know, that's sourced in ways that are ethical and that are sustainable and made by people with a certain intention. You know, but I I wanted to highlight this week a little bit about the idea of, you know, dressing a certain way and dressing up a little bit. You know, 
one of the things that I think we've come to, to believe in modern times is that we're dressing for ourselves and that the way that we dress is really just about us. So we talk about the fact that, you know, people say, well, I don't, I don't want to dress up because I'm not a diva. I'm not a narcissist. I'm not trying to draw attention to myself. But one of the things that pre-modern people understood is that all of us are struggling with our better nature uh, that requires a lot of intention and diligence and discipline and hard work. All of us are wrestling with the human condition that to be our better selves requires a lot of encouragement. It's easier to slide downward. It's easier to trend downward. And the ways that we engage in public with each other and in community with each other, the ways that we show up, um, absolutely create environments where when we, you know, when we get in the deep water or when we get in rough water, do we get pulled into the undertow, to the undercurrent so that we drown, or do we get pushed back on shore so that we can get cleaned up and stand back up again and get back on our feet? And the, the trends in society, the trends in community have a lot to do with that. And one of the things that traditional people believe, and specifically the Muslims really believe this, is that when we use beautiful language, when we beautify spaces, when we dress a certain way, when we present ourselves a certain way, when there's a level of refinement that trends upward, part of what we're doing is we're giving public uh, encouragement to, to be our better selves so that the, the inner struggle that we have going on in ourselves versus our, our higher selves and our lower selves, that we're offering encouragement for it to, to, to move up, to evolve, you know, to, uh, to refine ourselves and our relationships with um, the, the fight to improve upon ourselves and to improve upon the situation that we're in. And so the way that we dress very specifically, you know, it does a lot to send a message to ourselves. And it doesn't necessarily have to be a Western suit, doesn't necessarily have to be any one particular uniform. But the reality and the, of, of giving special attention to how do I want to present myself? You know, when we put on a certain uniform, when we put on certain clothes, you know, there are certain clothes that, that pull us down into leisure, into being, you know, easy, into being lazy, you know, versus when we put on clothes that are asking us to refine and to elevate. And when we do that, we send a message to ourselves about the way that we're going to step into the assignments of today, the moment of today, you know. Um, and it also sends a message to the people around us. There are some people that, you know, if you've ever dressed up, you know that when you walk into a place, people deal with you differently. Their posture, ch posture changes. Your posture changes. You know, the, the language that they start to use, the intention that they start to put into things. We literally can elevate or, um, uh, or you know, pull down the energy of a place that we walk into based on the way that we prepare ourselves. And so... You know, I, I cannot encourage us enough to, in general, 
be intentional about the ways that we show up. Also, you know, there's the whole issue of the energy and the sustainability and the ethics of the clothes that we wear, you know. Um, So head to Vice Gerent Official. The best way in my mind to to check in with them is to follow them on Instagram. Check out my dear brother Usman the Taylor and his incredible work. Um, And you'll see if you scroll through, if you follow them, you'll see on their stories, you'll see in their posts, all different people, all different walks of life, different uh, skin tones, different body shapes, different uh, work that people do. And you'll see the way that Usman and his team really literally tailor each piece and each garment and each look and each intention and each vibe to the person that they're working with. So very honored to be joined by Vice Jaren Official on the Travelers Podcast. Travelers Podcast is in partnership with and sponsored by UPF, Unity Productions Foundation. This is a group of of cultural creators that get together to not only uh, you know, make amazing pieces of art that tell really beautiful and profound stories. But also they have a program of giving back. So U- Unity Productions uh, is the, the organization. UPF is Unity Productions Foundation. And that's their work to give back as cultural workers, as curators, as artists. Specifically, they have a program called Unfold Your Own Myth, which I'm honored and grateful to be a participant and a contributor in that program. This basically is a group of writers, songwriters, poets, uh, speakers, um, you know, that, that are, and, and authors that are together to really encourage young people around the world that your story matters and that you matter and the wisdom you've gleaned from your story is useful to people. And so you are worth and your journey in this life is worth exploring and expressing and documenting. And not only your story in terms of your autobiography and your narrative, but also your imagination. The things that you imagine are going to be shaped and formed by who you are and also what your journey has been. And so head to upf.tv slash unfold and they have this amazing seminar that you can bring if you're a youth worker if you're a community worker if you bring people together if you've got teams if you're a manager of people if you're a leader of people you know if you've got a community project head to upf.tv slash unfold and check out unfold your own myth When you talk about, um, you know, the people that are kind of in your, the, the people that have inspired you, the MCs, the great MCs that have inspired you and become part of your style, I definitely hear Black Thought. I definitely hear Andre. I definitely hear KRS-One. Mm. Are there people that have come along later? Because there's times where I'm like, is there a little bit of Kendrick in there? But are there people that have come along like since you've been an artist that that influence you? Like not only inspire you or impress you, but that where some of what they do starts to inform what you do? Mm, I, I wouldn't say inform. I would just maybe say, like, I feel like J Electronica mm. um, is one who kind of validated what I was already kind of into. Because when I first started, I was heavily incorporating a lot of sci-fi elements, a lot of um, mysticism stuff, a lot of... Um, a lot of well, I, st- I always because I grew up in 
a community surrounded by, you know, a lot of beautiful Muslim people and, you know, all of that. I've I've always incorporated like, you know, Islamic kind of words and kind of concepts in a lot of my my uh music. <clears throat> but I think that when I discovered him or when I was Messiah turned me on to him, I was like, Oh yeah, like I can run with mm-hmm. this. Like these are all the things that I'm already super digging and into and this gives me you know in a way permission yes. to continue to keep doing this um especially since you know i feel like he was the only one at that time who was really because dre at one point you know had gotten into you know kind of like alien abstract kind of concepts and stuff like that but not to not in the way that um, J.E. was doing it. Um, so I would probably say him. I would probably say him for sure. KRS-One, like definitely that power, yeah. that forcefulness of, you know, his delivery for sure. He was the one, his album, My a friend gave me his album one summer. I remember I was 14 years old. Um, I think it was the KRS-One album, like the, the self-titled mm-hmm. one. And when I heard that, I was like... Yo, these are all the things that we talk about. Like, you know, like these are all the the super like, you know, he talking about Mumia. And, you know, he's he's like who told so who, who clear. Told you about Mumia? <laughs> right. How do you know about Mumia? <laughs> no, I was familiar with, you know, him and Black Cop and Son of the Police and all that stuff. But like hearing how clear and articulate he was, but also just so powerful and bold like i was just struck by that and i could not stop listening to that album and i really think that that was super pivotal for me in like shaping my voice Mm -hmm. um and and really my point of view uh from from that album and hearing him and how how commanding he was um yeah so yeah I, I, I mean, that's a compliment. All those people I love, Dre, Black Thought, love all of those people. And I think that they're phenomenal NCs. Black Thought <clears throat> says you're his female self. Like that you're just, that, that you all are the same. Like he basically is like me and Asada are twins. Yeah. And that, the. Call me his ATLian alter ego. ATLian alter the ego. Black when the sun <laughs> I fainted. Oh, I'm, I'm finished. I'm done. Yeah, man. I have fulfilled all of my, <laughs> all that I needed to fulfill as an MC. No, but uh, he. But I mean, when when the song that you all have together, that one <laughs> is it just one, or do you have other joints? Just yeah. one. That I mean, that mm-hmm. thing is like, and you wrote that on the spot. You didn't come with those bars. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. And that's a rare thing for There's me. There's not a like. It's not like oh, okay, Black Thought is here, and then like. And, and like, this is nice that he's doing this for her. You know what I mean? Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm saying you hear that sometimes. You hear it where like, right, she, where they're just like, she did good. Yeah, they're like, she oh, that's good. cool. Someone called in a favor. <laughs> that was cool. You know what I mean? Yeah. But I'm saying like those those moments where it's just like, so he said that on that song, and then it's, I mean, it's evident. There's not a there's not a differential in uh, not only the lyricism but presence as well. You know what I mean, and and he's he's mm. bringing it like he's full on like Tariq Black Thought, you know what I'm saying? Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful yeah. thing to to have something like that, 
in the catalog. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And I think I think it was a dope example of how, you know, the whole iron sharpens iron. Mm-hmm. And that's what uh, an exemplary MC should do. Mm-hmm. It should make you want to be to outmatch them. You know, you should be trying your darn your darndest. Um, even if it's someone who you look up to, admire, like they're supposed to bring that out in yes. you. And that really you're paying homage to them and all that they've given to the culture right. by being, you know, by by exceeding or attempting to exceed their abilities. Right. You know? Yeah, so. like this this is like this is not a this is not a half or off day mm-hmm. right now. Like you're gonna have you're gonna have to bring the whole thing. Yeah. Yeah. So that was that was a <laughs> Such an interesting experience, and and I wanted to ask you, do you write with people often, like, or do you are you at your best when you're by yourself writing, and then if you're collabing with someone, you kind of put your you both put your pieces together. Um, I've written with Freeway. Um, mm-hmm. Freeway came one time. We did a, I did like I put on like a free a series one time. It was a couple years in a row, free concert at the mosque where I used to be an assistant imam. Mm. And um so he stayed he he stayed in town for a while and we made joints together and we like wrote those together. Um but man, I haven't made a whole lot of music with other people. Me and Slug wrote together. Mm. Um you know, there's a couple songs that we did together. But I haven't done it a whole lot, you know. Um, but I have had the experience of my hero of like making music. Mostly I would say uh, with Chuck D, you know, Chuck, I, mm. I called Chuck and asked him to be on my album and he did it and it was really dope. But then I got the call from him to be on his record. And that was like, that's the, that's the yeah, thing. Man. <laughs> yeah. That was really, he asked me. <laughs> yeah. And it's funny cause New Yorkers always call me Ali. So he's like, yo, Ali, mm. <laughs> I need some of that Ali. Wow. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, man. That's super dope. And then, so I sent the verse and somehow, you know how sometimes like the engineer will put it, will put it on the beat, like a, a beat early or late. Yes. Like it didn't land Ugh. on the beat the way that I intended it to land on the beat. And I didn't hear it until mm-hmm. it was out. Oh, no. That's happened to me a few times. Yeah, man. Uh, There's one where I'm on a, a joint with CL Smooth, and it's the same thing. Oh man. Yeah, it got placed, and people always turn me down. People are like like make my vocal lower. Mm. Yeah, I hate when that stuff that tech, that kind of thing is like out of my control. The, the the dope thing with working with Messiah, like I that I love is that he knows exactly. His timing is impeccable. Mm-hmm. And then <clears throat> he knows exactly how to, you know, bump up my vocals, how they need to be, you know, put a little stank on them if they need a little stank. Like, I love that. Like, I love having him there to be able to bring out the best of what I can do. And I think that that, that was one of the things that helped me excel as an MC. Mm-hmm. You know, not to mention, like, all the things he taught me about. You know, that man taught me how to, what a 16 was, you know? Um, but I think that 
is one of the things that I where I realize I'm very privileged to have come of age in a sense, you know, in the real world and as an MC <laughs> and have access, you know, to studio, access to, you know, a, a tried and true producer, a tried and tested producer and someone who can recognize not necessarily my shortcomings or things where I might need to grow into whatever and kind of create music or like engineer after the fact to make sure I shone. Mm-hmm. And um, so I'm, I'm very thankful for that. You know, I talk to, you know, when I hear like, especially stories of like other women MCs who, <clears throat> you know, the journey that they, they take, you know, having to deal with BS producers, you know, you know, trying to find money and time for studio and then have people hold stuff hostage, hold it, hold a music hostage. It's just all kinds of stuff that I was just like, I was given this opportunity to blossom within this cocoon. And that's, that's one of the things, like when I talk about metamorphosis, um, I always have to remind people, I know that the real word is metamorphosis. metamorphosis. No, but it's a metamorphosis and <laughs> also Morpheus. Yeah, yeah, it's the combination of you know the idea of Morpheus and, and finding the one and, and and inevitably finding the one within yourself. Mm-hmm. But like I, that concept of emerging into something of you and the divine's own creation mm-hmm. um, on your own terms has always been you know kind of at the forefront because I've had multiple opportunities to do that. Mm-hmm. You know to. Um, to blossom, you know, on my own terms. So that's just one example of, of that. And I'm thankful for to Soul Messiah for allowing me or yeah, affording me that opportunity. You know, it's when you're when you're in a situation where the norm is oppressive and the norm is demonic and the norm is uh, you know, looking to extinguish light at all costs. And the norm is to commodify and the norm is to separate and divide and conquer and, you know, so many things uh, become revolutionary acts, you know, Mm -hmm. and to see you and Soul Messiah on stage together, you know, to see a woman on stage as powerful as you are, as elegant and powerful at the same time. And this is what you're talking about. You know, the divine is is uh, is ultimately perfect balance. You know, and so to see this elegant power, but then also Soul Messiah to be, uh, you know, in a supporting role, you know, in a role where he's mm-hmm. not looking for, for the spotlight, where he's not on the, you know, he has a mic, but he's backing up you. And he's saying your words. Right. He's saying words that you wrote, that he's backing up you. You know, and especially w- right. to know him and to know something about his story with how uh, influential and how important he's been to hip hop culture as a whole, but particularly, you know, in Atlanta, it's a, just a really beautiful thing to see that on stage. And I think even before you say, utter a single word, and before he drops a single beat, you know, to just see that the two of you on stage with, with, uh, with, with that mutual respect and with the, I would say the, the interdependence and the, the team, the, the, the team uh, work that goes into putting on what you all do. 
is this a really beautiful thing? And it reminds me of the, I've told him this a hundred times, but it reminds me of the, the verse in the Quran that says, that men are supporters of women. But the word like rijal, for that particular word for manhood talks about being legs. You know, that, that um, mm. you know, the idea is to help create a foundation that allows, that allows for our partners to be their complete selves, you know what I mean? To, to provide the support. And that's actually the sign of when somebody is, um, you know, is in harmony in that way, you know? Mm-hmm. So, uh, you know, I just want to make space for you to, to share whatever you would like about, about Soul Messiah. He is just, he's just really incredible. He's really incredible. And, um, there's so many layers to who he is. Uh, not just, like you said, his contribution to hip hop. Um, I, I still find out to this day, mm-hmm. you know, some things that he's done, you know, you know, stories that he forgot to tell me because they're just so many. Yeah. Um, but he's always just been this like effortless leader, mm-hmm. which is so... Um, inspiring to me and so admirable because for me I kind of was I felt like I was placed in a or pushed towards a position of leadership um <laughs> uh and you know it wasn't some it wasn't a place that I really wanted to be but looking at him and him lead so effortlessly and not because of of needing, you know, accolades or validation, but because he, he fills voids wherever he sees Mm -hmm. them. He wants to serve. He wants to be wherever he can be of service to people, to uplift his people, to be, um, to contribute to the culture, to contribute to community, to contribute to the, um, the cultural conversation of that is hip hop. You know, he's always like to have this singular focus on, you know, music and and hip hop for so long, you know, since he was 10 years old, like to have explored almost every part of hip hop to know them, them intimately, except for emceeing and to be so good at every single one of them is just phenomenal to me. But also I think what's reflected in, the care and the precision and dedication to music is really his his capacity to love and you see that in within his relationships with you know with me with his his children you know his family and anyone who he meets that he cares about and has a connection with um he's just super loving and supportive and um really careful to give people the space to grow because he knows exactly who he is. So people's growing in front of him doesn't diminish him. He understands that completely. If, if anything, they, um, it only serves to enlighten him to see someone else, um, be comfortable with their shine. You know, it enlightens, it enlightens him. Um, so he's just, he's a, he, I feel like he's a jewel. You know, he is a jewel, you know, not only within the culture of hip hop, but but within anyone um, 
anyone who's blessed to be able to meet him and to have him in their life, he's he's just an important resource and, you know, just this amazing, uh, amazing energy. And I feel like if I hadn't met him, I, well, I'm not, I feel like if I hadn't met him, I wouldn't be doing what I'm doing. Um, and him, him particularly, and not just like a person who happened to be, you know, uh, a fixture within the hip hop community, but like he in particular who allowed me the grace and allow and was patient with me, but also, you know, with his, his, his urgency like he's like he's a man who get things who gets things done so he's going to make sure that you get it done but like also being really patient with you and understanding of like where you are in your journey you know and giving you space to figure that out is is I think was the perfect formula for me kind of developing who I wanted to be but um he's just incredible he is incredible and I want to give him his flowers as often and as loudly as I can. <laughs> Absolutely. I feel like the idea that he's the leader that he is and he's the artist be- that he is because of his capacity to love. I feel like that, I feel like that needs a, needs yeah. a minute. Um, there's so much more that I would love to talk to you about and ask you about. You've been really generous with your time. Um, but if it's okay I would love for you to to just bring this particular chapter to a close. Also, there's nothing that says that we can't do this over and over and over again if you're down to just, if you know, <laughs> if you're down for it. Let's go. Um, you know, we, we talk about becoming one of those mythical figures in the pantheon of great, of great contributors to, uh, to art and to culture, you know, and, and you are that. And so what, when people look back on you, would you like for your message to be? What is, what's your, what's your legacy if you had to, if you had to distill it? What's the, what's the mark that you're leaving on the world? I think my, my primary purpose is to create music and create art that allows people, including myself, to elevate to the fullness of who they are. Um, You know, and the first step to that is liberation, liberation of consciousness, liberation of um, liberation, liberating oneself from all of the strictures and all of the um kind of oppressive thought that has been imprinted upon us telling us that we aren't enough um i think the goal through my music is for people to understand or overstand how powerful they are and to find the best way that they can show up in that power that they can express their power in whatever way their mission or path or journey on this planet um, sees fit for them. And um, because as as I explore, you know, my own self and as my lifelong journey has been about discovering 
the fullness of my fullness of self and in tapping into my divine power that allows me to express that and really free up those parts of myself that have been confined or contained to this physical body. Um, as I discovered the microphone and used it as a vehicle to expand, I shared that, that love, that growth, the, all the comfortability and the discomfort and the discovery. I shared that with everybody who's listening in the hopes that they discover it within themselves. So really liberation, elevation, fullness of power, you know, I shine, you shine, all of that. <laughs> you know how much I, I love the Something Real song. You know mm -hmm. what I mean? Like I, I, all my favorite MCs, like the, some of the times the songs that I love from them are not the, are not the single and it's not the, the quotable and it's not the like, but that's what I really, when I, one of the ways that I really gauge and know somebody to be a truly phenomenal, remarkable lyricist MC when they're, you know, just, you know, the first verse off of track three on the record is so amazing. <laughs> Deep cuts. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> like there's there's guru joints that you know that like I just that just live inside me. I think about y'all that got me pissed off, blast off, lift off. Time for me to twist off, vocal fist off until you don't piece home piece. There's just like joints like that from all of my favorite MCs that that really live in my in my heart. And one of the that something real is one of the ones from you. Um, but it's in that coupling where you're saying you know, I, I never surmise my drive, da, da, I pride, but I pride my destiny out of the hands of sinner types. 10% in men of vice became an instrument of light. You mm -hmm. know what I mean? And who have the guts to challenge mm -hmm. that? Because this is the greatest show on every line, the freaking balance act, you know, mm -hmm. that, I think that reality uh, to me, you know, that you absolutely are an instrument of light and the darker it gets, the more the light is necessary. And the, also the darker it gets, the darker the, the, the environment, the more even a little bit of light can, can just erase all of that. Like darkness is a deprivation. Yeah. I'm talking about spiritual darkness. I'm not talking about, you know. But spiritual but darkness is a deprivation of light. And so the second some light shows up, you know what I mean, it, it just corrects all of that. You know what I mean? It's just a bit, mm -hmm. and yeah, and there's an uh, there's a oh go ahead I'm sorry no please go ahead no um, there's an artist that um, named Mama Soul oh yeah Mama Soul is amazing who, she's yeah. incredible yeah and and I I didn't hear the question of this interview it was an expert excerpt from an interview that she did where she was talking about when she when people find her music they she wants them to perceive her music like a holy book, you know, and not in the sense of that, you know, she's, you know, the end all be all God or whatever, but in, in her words, but her, her, that her words are sacred and she considers them so thoughtfully and intentionally before she writes and creates and, and, you know, shares her music with the world. And that was so, I was so in alignment with that, resonated so deeply with me um, in that if there can be anything in what I create that is a source of comfort for someone, that is a source of guidance, um, 
awakening, illumination, like then my job is done. I've done my job well. If the words that I've so thoughtfully considered and thoughtfully um, examined before I uttered them, because I understand how powerful words are, words sound power. Um, If that in any way can be an inspiration for anyone or some kind of solace for anyone, that is, that's what I've been called to do. So my job has been fulfilled. Beautiful. Beautiful. No better way to, no better way to wrap it up. Um, you know, I, you're a living treasure. You're a treasure. You're a treasure in this culture. You know, when I, when I, I think when I was younger and I always envisioned like, you know, where is this thing going? You know what I mean? Like if this is where it's at now. And I remember KRS said, nobody's from the old school because rap is still a brand new tool. 50 years down the line, yes. we can start this because we'll be the old school artists. And I, I remember thinking mm-hmm. to myself, because I'm like 12 when he said that. And I'm thinking like, man, what's this, what's this going to be like, you know? And, and how is this thing going to grow and mature and evolve? And, 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 you know, what type of beauty and, and excellence is it going to produce? Like how many more superheroes mm-hmm. are coming along that this, you know? Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, in some ways it's, 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 it's evolved in those, in the, like I thought it might. And um, in other ways, and sometimes we're, we're looking for that, you know. But you're absolutely one of the people that like, you know, even in my wildest dreams, it's like, you know, for you to have emerged on the scene, it really is a gift. And so, you know, I and I think we all are really grateful to you for all of the um, for all of the sacrifices and for all of the effort and for all of the intention and the thoughtfulness and just for the extreme generosity, you know, that it really, for what you do offer the world and for what you do offer everybody that comes in contact with you and with your work and with your art and with your being and with your presence, you know, the people that get to not only be in the world with you, but be in a room with you and watch the transform, watch the, the metamorphosis that happens when you, you know what I'm saying, transform from, you know, from being Sada to being Sarak, you know. Um, mm-hmm. it, it really is a tremendously healing force. Uh, it really is a, it's a very, very divine thing. And so, you know, for all of that generosity of spirit and that generosity of, of life force, we're just really very, very grateful to you. And um, thank you. yeah, man. And, and thank you for being one of the early guests on this uh on this show i appreciate it thank you for having me it's an honor honestly endless gratitude to the incredible mc artist healer educator speaker and universe known as uh, rock Special thanks and shout out to Soul Messiah, who is her amazing DJ and producer and incredible force on his own. We have to have Soul Messiah on the show at some point very soon. Uh, head to sawrock.com and check out their album, The Sharecropper's Daughter. You can check out all of their merch offerings. They have 
an entire catalog of music that you can check out. Cyrock also has a hot sauce that's amazing. You can check that out. It's completely vegan, super dope. Uh, also, make sure to head to brotherali.com for all the information and updates about the podcast. Uh, go to the event section to see all of our upcoming tour dates. Come and see us on the Traveler's Tour. Head to the join section on brotherali.com so you can get down with the caravan to support and engage and be part of the community in the caravan. Want to give a special shout out to Amna Mirza, to Mansour Panawala, DJ Last Word, to Amir Rahman, my brother Ant, who produced the song The Travelers and allowed us to use the music as our theme song. Special shout to Darian Washington, to Mark from Medina, who, who created the stamp that we use as the logo for this podcast. The Travelers Podcast is produced by Brendan Kelly and is a production of Travelers Media, sending you all the love, sending you all the peace, all the well wishes. Please make sure to like and share and subscribe and comment. All of that stuff really helps the podcast to grow. Don't assume that we want to be the best kept secret in music or podcasting. We really depend on you to spread the word. If you're loving the podcast, if you're enjoying it, if you're appreciating it, thank you so much for all of your well wishes and your messages. What helps us the most is to share, to spread the word. We love you. We appreciate you. Assalamu alaikum wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh.